Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. John Graham and Beth Frock have lived in Rochester for 25 years. Ten years ago, their lives changed forever. I can kind of just almost relive it. John is talking about Tropical Storm Irene. It hit Vermont on August 28, 2011. The damage it did was catastrophic. And all these years later, the details of what happened that day in Rochester are still fresh in John's memory. Over the course of the day, it just never stopped raining, this torrential rain. And trees started disappearing from outside our window. It just would take one and the next, and the water just kept rising. One thing to know about John and Beth's house at the time is that it wasn't located in an official flood zone. It was situated high up on a hill overlooking a small creek. But on that day, 10 years ago, the small creek turned into a raging torrent. The water ate away at the hill that gave John and Beth's house its elevation. And I can remember the, how the air just filled the, the smell of fresh dirt because it was just pulling out the dirt from under the foundation. And then at one point, the basement walls collapsed, the water rushed through, catapulting everything that had been in there out like it was a cannon. Yeah, it's funny how you're not really, even if you know the, how extreme the situation is, you really can't sense just how extreme it is. And we were outside and our daughters remembered that our cats were inside. So we went back in to get them. In hindsight, John and Beth say they should have evacuated much sooner. But at the time, they went back inside to find their two cats, Guinevere and Theo. Beth found Guinevere pretty quickly. I picked him up and ran out of the house and I turned and I'm running and I turn around and look over my shoulder and John's not there. And then the house falls into the river. <laughs> yeah, you heard that correctly. The house fell into the river with her husband still inside. I had to then crawl through the rubble to get back out. That was it. That was the reality of that moment that... I had no idea that that was going to happen until it did. In the aftermath of Irene, John Graham and Beth Frock spoke to VPR many times about their struggle. John Graham and Beth Frock think their story illustrates the challenges faced by people in the flood zone. So they've agreed to let us check in with them now and in the future as they try to put their lives back together. When I asked John and Beth why they were so open about their personal lives and the immense challenges they faced, they said that people in their community were just happy to know they were doing okay. And it wasn't just us to a certain degree. It was everybody. We happened to be the ones that got talked to, but I think for people it was about processing that for everybody that had that happen. The reason I wanted to talk to John and Beth again was because of a question someone submitted to Brave Little State. Really, it was more of a comment. They wrote, I'd like to hear Vermonter's stories from Hurricane Irene those not impacted, those who lost everything, and those still recovering. This question asker never responded to my emails, but their curiosity connects to something that John and Beth's oldest daughter, Rihanna, 
said to VPR in December of 2011, four months after the storm. She was 16 years old at the time. We talk about the 1927 flood, but we just talk about, like, the flood. We don't really think about, like, what the people went through. Like, you think, like, in another hundred years, what are people going to be saying about this flood? That's what this episode marking the 10th anniversary of Irene is about. The people, what they went through, and in some cases, what they're still going through. Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism show. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we answer your questions about Vermont, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, we take on a listener request about the 10-year anniversary of Tropical Storm Irene, and we tell three distinct stories. Josh Crane follows up with John Graham and Beth Frock. They've been on a decade-long journey to rebuild their life after Irene shattered their former one. It was fairly mind-blowing, traumatic. I can pull up the details because they never become routine. Then I tell a tale of two Southern Vermont businesses. Which would you rather face up against, a flood or a pandemic, as a business owner? I think I'd, I'd take a flood. More practice. And Myra Flynn takes us to one community where the flooding affected residents both living and deceased. It was just very hard for people to process the fact that they had put their mother or father or grandfather to rest for eternity, right? And guess what? They're not where you thought they were. They're gone. From the personal to the financial to the immortal. We have support from VPR's sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. John Graham and Beth Frock's journey hasn't just involved getting over the devastation of having their home of 15 years crumble into the water, almost taking John with it. It also meant waiting for the ruins of that house to finally be cleared away. It meant dealing with the fact that their homeowner's insurance didn't cover any of the damage. It meant waiting years to get out from under mortgage payments for a house they could no longer live in. It meant getting approved for a FEMA buyout with no timetable of when they would actually get the money. Here's VPR's Mitch Wertlieb talking to Beth in December of 2012, nearly a year and a half after Irene. So it's all just a waiting period at this point. Everything seems to be in limbo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds like Groundhog Day every, you know, when we speak with you guys about this, but it, it's, it's got to be unbelievably frustrating. To wake up in the middle of the night sometimes in a cold sweat thinking about it, but mostly because, you know, until we get the money, we don't even feel positive that we're really going to get it, you know? John and Beth also had to replace their belongings, most of which had gotten washed away with their house. 
Here's Beth talking to VPR about a month after Irene. It's sort of this chain of things you don't realize what you don't have. Somebody gave me baking sheets, and I thought, oh, good, I can make cookies. But then I realized I didn't have any measuring cups. <laughs> so the next person that came by said, well, you know, measuring cups. And then I got the measuring cups, and then I realized I don't have baking soda or baking powder. So actually, yeah, because if, if we have to replace all those little things, it's so many things, just little things that you don't think about. In the present day, John and Beth have long since managed to replace their baking soda and baking powder and the dozens of other everyday things they had previously taken for granted. It's really hard to lose all your stuff. Like, people will say to me, oh, I don't care. If I lost all my stuff, I wouldn't care if my house burned to the ground. Well, they don't, they have, they're clueless. I mean, I might have said that too before, but when it's all gone, it's really hard. <laughs> it's the irreplaceable things they lost in the storm that still weigh heavy on their minds. I had a priceless <laughs> feather hat that was made in the 30s that was my grandmother's. That's the one that I regret the most. Not priceless, financially priceless, but to me, it's really hard. Well, I, your identity is invested yeah. in what you, what you choose to bring into your life as objects is reflective of who you are to a certain extent. So it's like you feel like you've been stripped away of something that reflects who you are. John and Beth still live in Rochester, much further away from the river, in a house that John's mother used to live in. And while it's taken much of the past decade for them to rebuild their lives in the literal sense, they've also had some internal rebuilding to do. Here's Beth and then John about a month after the storm. We haven't been sleeping well. Not, nobody in this town has been sleeping well. From what the Red Cross said to me, that it's classic. That trauma that the whole town feels. We just don't sleep well. Yeah, it's up and down. It's you know, your proverbial emotional roller coaster. You think you're getting better and then one day you like go back. It's not great when it rains. It sort yeah. of like triggers a physiological reaction. It just feels like the same feeling we had just before it happened we just have this sense of dread and you don't really can't really pin it down it wasn't just rain that gave john a sense of dread it was also anything that brought him back to the experience of being stuck inside his collapsing house my youngest daughter's violin teacher took us to see uh natalie mcmasters at the uh, paramount in rutland and it was packed and when she got going everybody started stamping their feet we were on the balcony, and I could just feel that motion, and I almost had to leave. It was like I had to master a panic attack because it was just recreating that sense of when the ground beneath your feet is no longer doing what your entire life has taught you that you do. At this point, John's panic attacks are long behind him. But for Beth and for him, they still experience the impacts of Irene when they close their eyes to go to sleep at night. Yeah, I've had lots of dreams that involve walking through buildings that are semi-flooded. Right, exactly. You're having to, not drowning, because it wasn't about drowning, but just water, water everywhere. Looking back, John says Irene changed him in profound ways. <sighs> Psychologically, I'm, I feel different. I approach things differently. I feel like I'm more direct than I used to be. I can't waste time beating around the bush. Perhaps the part of John and Beth's Irene experience that stayed with them the most, though, wasn't the trauma. It was the way their neighbors rallied around them when they were at their lowest point, feeding them and helping them salvage what they could of their belongings 
and just checking in on them from time to time. That was really monumental and just shaping my how I feel about things politically or socially is that, you know, I believe people basically want to do good. We didn't even have to ask for help. There were just people looking to help us. John and Beth watched their Rochester community respond in a similar way more recently when the pandemic hit. The few people that did get COVID here were very supportive in the same way. So we still do that and we still remember that. And that, you know, whenever anything happens to anybody, I think more quickly than before that, everyone rallies around them. That same spirit of togetherness made it so that the majority of this community took all the precautions that were advised by the governor and the CDC seriously. You know, there's a sense of uh, civic responsibility. Yeah. Um, Especially now we live in a time where politically there are groups that prey on people's fears and try to trigger their fears. And it's like, it's, it's not a healthy way to live. So if people realize that there's strength in their neighbors, it gives them a much firmer foundation for their own lives. And I think that, you know, is the lesson if there's a lesson to be learned from the same. I mean, that was one of them. When I initially contacted John Graham and Beth Frock for this story, they said they were kind of expecting to hear from BPR. 10 years since Irene is a big milestone after all, but they don't have any plans of their own to mark the occasion. Instead, they're living life day by day and taking nothing for granted. Or as John puts it, still living our lives moving forward. Josh Crane is an engagement producer on our show. Of course, it wasn't just families affected by Irene. It was businesses, too. Hi, Sheila. Yes, hi. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Sheila Osler offers me coffee at least three times during our interview. She also offers several times to warm up a muffin for me. I shouldn't be surprised. Along with her husband, Jerry, Sheila has been in the hospitality business since 1973. At this point, they're both in their 80s. We've had the Red Mill here in Wilmington for 48 years. As you can see from looking around, it's very rustic. It was originally built as a lumber mill in 1828. It's a neat spot on the National Register of Historic Places and about eight miles from Mount Snow. Sheila can recommend activities in any direction. And don't forget the coffee and the muffins that we talked about. (laughs) We're sitting in the dining room here at the old Red Mill Inn that overlooks the Deerfield River. The water is pretty far down below us, like a story or two. But 10 years ago? It came up 20 feet. Wow. I will show you a little later the watermark on the wall. The water was about six inches high on this floor. Irene did half a million dollars in damage. It took a couple of years for it to really get back up to normal. Mm-hmm. Normal it, it did eventually. It did, yes. Um, if you can hear some hesitation in Sheila's voice, it's because in recent years, the Red Mill has had its share of challenges. Irene wasn't even the first. We've had this cyclical problem of 
the ups and downs of the economy, starting with the economic crash in 2008. That really did a number on us. And then the flood coming on top of that. And then, of course, COVID. We were closed from late March 2020 until, I guess it was 1st of August of that summer. And then the recovery definitely was very minimal. This summer, it seems to have picked up a bit. Uh, Not completely, but uh, it has improved. I'm here on a Tuesday in August, and Sheila says there are two rooms booked out of 24. She says that's a bit slower than a usual summer weekday, and they're always busier on weekends. The inn also has two longer-term guests who work in the area. We call them lightly monthlies (laughs) because they schedule by the month with us. Mm -hmm. They also have permission to be in the kitchen. And that's about all the use the inn's kitchen gets these days. A few years ago, Sheila and Jerry made the decision to close their 150-seat restaurant, which is why it's so quiet in the dining room where we're talking now. Sheila says they can still get by with just the inn portion of their business. But that restaurant had employed 18 people. Now the inn has just two staff. Right now, uh, only housekeeping. And uh, we do have a maintenance person. It's interesting to hear you reflecting on many different sort of hardships or disasters, right? There's the... It has been... Um, and unfortunately, I don't, I, I hate to sound as if I'm whining. I guess I am. Um, and I don't mean to be. We've stayed in, in business because we felt we had to. But, um, you know, um, hope springs eternal. Sheila does have a positive vision for the future. She thinks the shift to more remote work bodes well for recreational communities like Wilmington. People have learned that they can have kind of their cake and eat it especially if they're interested in skiing or, in the summer, golfing. Get a bit more population growth, and Sheila figures you could reopen the mill's bar and restaurant, even start a brewery. But she and her husband Jerry won't be making that investment. They want to retire and spend more time with their kids out west. So they're looking to sell the inn. I ask Sheila if any of their prospective buyers have been worried about the Deerfield River down below us, and the potential for more flooding like Irene, driven by climate change. Actually, I have to say that I don't think they thought about that too much. The flood 10 years ago was the first of that magnitude since 1938. And for the same reason that people buy property near the beach especially in the Carolinas and Georgia and Florida. I mean, are they crazy? Because it's obviously there's going to be hurricanes. But I think they feel it's not going to happen to me. Sheila and Jerry Osler are looking to move on from their business. But about an hour north of here, in the town of Londonderry, Judy Platt wants to stay right where she is. Though she's not taking any chances when it comes to flooding. I tell people, I just always keep my eyes on the river. You know, I do. My name's Judy Platt. I live in Weston. Um, My husband Tom and I have our businesses in Londonderry. We own the Garden Restaurant, uh, the Garden Market. We have several rental apartments in our two big buildings. We also own the old post office. 
which we are hoping to make more, into more rental units. And um, we've been here for 50 years, and uh, we hope that we can stay. So that's three buildings that the Platts own, right here on the east bank of the West River. The flood of Irene, <laughs> yeah. Um, it came into our restaurant and was uh, 10 feet deep in our dining room. In the middle of our parking lot, at the height of the storm, the water was up to our necks. It was almost $800,000 worth of damage. Since then, we've had two more sort of epic floods, and um, we, we have a lot of flood debt, obviously, that we can't seem to climb out of. But we are engaged in this project here. This project is how Judy wants to secure the future of these buildings, by fortifying them against flood water. We're raising the post office to four feet above the flood level, which will make it floodproof, we hope. And the government is participating with us in a grant where they put in three quarters of the money and we put in a quarter of the money. This project has taken almost exactly 10 years to get underway. Over the past decade, others in Londonderry have taken buyouts to have their flood-prone properties leveled. After Irene, there was much discussion about the need to give our rivers a wider berth. But Judy says FEMA saw value in these buildings. You might want to take a picture, though. It kind of gives an idea of, like... On the day I visit, the former post office is up on stilts, with a new foundation underneath. This goes down 10 feet. The gravel? Yes. And the um, foundation wall? Yes. Wow. As for the other two buildings that the Platts own, the restaurant and the market, Judy says the plan is to build a giant retaining wall. They will be fortified with a concrete wall that goes around them. And then where the windows are, there are titanium inserts that go in, and they're waterproof. And it's um, engineering that comes out of Holland. For that, though, they're having trouble securing funding. We've reached out to banks, and in this... um, climate. They don't want to have anything to do with restaurants. Right now, the restaurant is closed. The Platts are hoping a renovation will be part of the FEMA project. Next door to that, their market is open with limited hours. Only because there's a, a labor shortage. Um, which would you rather face up against, a flood or a pandemic as a business owner? Oh, that's a hard question. I think I'd, I'd take a flood. Have a more practice. And come pandemic or high water, Judy Platt wants these businesses to endure. And even if we're not here, the restaurant will probably always be here. You know, and that's what we're doing. We're just continuing to get it ready. For now, the rental properties in the Platt's buildings are helping cover their losses on the restaurant side. Judy Platt says there's no shortage of interest in those. After the break. So the cemetery was now divided in two sections by this gorge that had washed out the graves. When a catastrophe in this life takes a toll on those who have already passed, that's right after this. It's Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Today, we're telling three stories about the aftermath, 10 years later, of Tropical Storm Irene. 
Our last story comes from Myra Flynn, and it's about the flooding of hallowed ground. Our first goal, of course, was to bring some respect and dignity to the remains that we found, because the land no longer existed. It was gone. (laughs) That's Tom Hardy of Rochester. When we speak on Zoom, he's at the United Church of Bethel, where he has been the pastor for the last 20 years. We're talking about a morbid event that took place during Tropical Storm Irene that I was surprised to find wasn't reported on much, in Vermont anyway. Of course, it happened during the night. So uh, we were unaware of it in Randolph, and of course, then communications was down. And the next day, we got a call at the funeral home saying that the cemetery had been hit. Alongside being a pastor, Tom is a managing funeral home director, a former state medical examiner, and a former state trooper. In his community, he's known for wearing many hats. He's also known as the dead people guy. I think part of the reason that I got tapped was like, okay, you're the, you're the dead people guy, <laughs> you know. You know, I've just been around tragedy. The night tropical storm Irene tore through Vermont, Tom had a rare chance to wear all of his hats. So I took a four-wheeler and went down Route 100. And when I got to where the driveway for the cemetery should be, there's this huge mound of gravel, seven or eight feet tall, where Route 100 should be. And there was a coffin on top of it. Woodlawn Cemetery has been in service to the community since the early 1800s and is the burial ground to more than 1,000 dead. It's built right next to the Nason Brook, but well above the water, and had survived two previous disasters completely unscathed, the floods in 1927 and the Great East Coast Hurricane of 1938. So no one thought of it as a flood zone. But when Irene hit, it was the brook that caused all the problems. So the cemetery was now divided in two sections by this gorge down through it that had washed out the graves and a lot of the things had tumbled into this gorge. And it was, you know, 12, 14 feet deep. I mean, it was, it was astounding to see what the power of water can do in a short few minutes. Though it is rare, it's not unknown for flooding to disturb graves. Hundreds were pulled out of the ground by hurricanes Katrina and Rita in Mississippi, Louisiana, and other parts of the South. But while a low water table in those places means some graves lie in above-ground vaults, it's not so common for a flash flood to do similar damage in an area like Vermont, where caskets are buried well above sea level. Ten years ago, on the infamous night of the storm, the Woodlawn Cemetery in Rochester flooded so severely that an estimated 52 grave sites washed away, uprooting coffins and remains of community-loved ones, some of whom had been laid to rest nearly 50 years prior. And then, of course, the task was, well, where do they belong? Who was this? You know, where was their grave? Tom used every connection he could think of to recover the disturbed remains, right down to his own daughter, 20-year-old Bridget, who collected, cataloged, and photographed jewelry and obtained DNA samples for testing. The task eventually led Tom to Dr. Elizabeth Bunduk, the state's deputy chief medical examiner, who also had never seen anything like this. The identification of the bodies turned out to be a long process. Dr. Bunduk didn't even allow press at the cemetery. And I wonder whether part of the reason she was and continues to be so protective of these deceased is because she spent a lot of time with them. 
identifying everybody because they're not marked. Once they come out of their caskets, which was many cases, we had to re-identify them and they actually took years to finish that part of the project. Tom and Dr. Bundick worked in tandem, looking for identifying markers on skulls or asking living family members for DNA samples. And then also working with cemetery staff who know local families and know, oh yes, you know, so-and-so's granddaughter is this person. Small town stuff. Small town stuff is really what solved this dilemma. The medical examiner's office believes they recovered 24 intact bodies and just over 70 individual bones. 22 of the bodies and four skulls were successfully identified. Two bodies were not. Even when loved ones were identified, they couldn't be reburied because the land simply didn't exist anymore. So bodies were kept in burial vaults and stacked above ground in a semicircle as a kind of temporary monument. It lasted all winter, collecting flowers and prayers from the community until the cemetery was totally rebuilt, the graves were plotted, and the land of Woodlawn was put back together. But they still needed caskets since all had been decimated in the storm. So Tom called up a big casket manufacturer. In this case, a mixture of Federal Reserves and Tom's wallet came to the rescue. They said, well, we have a special FEMA casket that we use for disasters. They said, how are you going to, you know, who's going to pay for these? And I said, FEMA. They said, well, how, you know, what are we going to do in the meantime? And I was like, uh, I'll give you my credit card number. <laughs> yeah, I put the first, the first 30 caskets on my credit card. After having worked, you know, 16-hour days, days and days and days in a row and, you know, in hot weather, climbing over rocks to get these people um, recovered and to see those trucks coming over the hill and driving up into the cemetery made me cry. Um, it was it was a big deal. As for those two bodies that weren't identified, they were eventually buried in a special casket built by local students with wood from evergreens that went down in the cemetery during Irene. It's kind of a moving thing to, to stand there and look at that now in this lush, green, serene landscape with this babbling little brook behind you in this wonderful pastoral setting with the mountains surrounding you. And you forget that Mother Nature really wreaked havoc on that night back in 2011. It was, uh, it's amazing. Tom says he's not too worried about this sort of thing happening again because the town was rebuilt in a more resilient way. Great care was taken to reroute the nascent brook with huge boulders that can withstand tremendous pressure and keep the water away from the cemetery. Highway 100 below the cemetery was rebuilt and the drainage systems were examined and can be reinforced should this come up again. The bridges in the area, built over tiny brooks, now have a very wide clearance to give more room for vehicles and whatever else may come across them. Infrastructure aside, it's people Tom worries about most. It was just very hard for people to process the fact that they had put their mother or father or grandfather to rest for eternity, right? That's this Christian view. And guess what? They're not where you thought they were. They're gone. It sounds strange coming from a funeral director. But the memorialization of the dead in the way we do it in the United States is really different than in most places in the world. 
It only takes a click of Google to learn that Tom's not wrong. In Tibet, some Buddhists leave their dead outside for birds or other animals to devour, embracing the circle of life and giving sustenance to animals. A tradition in some parts of India involves parading the dead around the streets, the bodies dressed in colors and then cremated. And in some Nordic countries, water is a preferred grave. Some bodies are set adrift in death ships, either along a river or sent out into the ocean, giving the bodies back to the gods. I asked Tom what kinds of changes we should expect when it comes to burying our dead. He says, in order to change our rituals, we first have to change our perspectives. You know, we, we secure ourselves a plot of land. We get a deed for it. It's our family plot. And we put our ancestors there, you know, we're going to go there someday. Well, that's great in a lifespan's sense of time. But over geologic time, it means nothing, right? Vermont was one time covered with a mile-thick layer of ice. It's what carved the Green Mountains. Humans mean nothing. And we have to put ourselves in the perspective of where we are, you know, in time and, and space and, and be a little less, uh, have a little less hubris. And Tom says we shouldn't wait for death to learn some of these lessons about our impermanence. Between, you know, uh, the natural disaster we are used to and a pandemic, they, they both shut down certain parts of our societies very quickly. The natural disaster tends to do it immediately, right? You have a flood, you can't do things. You have a wildfire, you can't do things. You have a hurricane, you can't do things. COVID, people had to realize that you could still do it, but you should not do it for the good of others. We may not always be able to do what we think we can do. We may be at the top of the food chain, but we are certainly not in charge of, uh, in charge of nature. Myra Flynn is an engagement producer on our show. Thanks so much for listening to the show. To see photos of the Woodlawn Cemetery Project and other people and places from this episode, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can also submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. This episode was reported and produced by Josh Crane, Myra Flynn, and me, with editing from Lynn McRae. Mix and sound design by Josh Crane and me. Digital production by Myra Flynn and Elodie Reed. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Melody Baudet, Mitch Wertlieb, and others at VPR who spoke to the Graham Frock family over the years. Thanks also to Greg Lesh, Kathleen Broshan, Ben Rose, and Howard Weiss-Tisman. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from VPR sustaining members. You can become one of those at bravelittlestate.org donate, or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with more people-powered journalism. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.